Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 26. Between London and Chatham. On arriving in London, George drove to a fine hotel in Cavendish Square, where a suite of splendid rooms and a magnificently furnished table, surrounded by half a dozen silent waiters, were ready to receive them. He welcomed Joss and Dobbin in, and Amelia, for the first time exceedingly shyly, presided at what George called her own table. George pooh-poohed the wine and bullied the waiters royally, and Joss gobbled the turtle with satisfaction. The splendor and expense of the rooms alarmed Mr. Dobbin, who remonstrated after dinner, but in vain. "'I've been accustomed to travel like a gentleman,' George said. "'And damn, my wife shall travel like a lady. She shall want for nothing.' Dobbin did not try and convince him that Amelia's happiness was not centered in turtle soup. After dinner, Amelia timidly expressed a wish to go and see her mamma at Fulham, which permission George granted with some grumbling, and she tripped away to her enormous bedroom with its funereal bed and put on her bonnet and shawl while George stayed drinking claret in the dining room. "'Aren't you coming with me, dearest?' she asked him. No, the dearest had business that night. So Amelia made George a little disappointed curtsy and went sadly down the great staircase. Captain Dobbin went after her, handed her into the coach, and saw it drive away. Then Dobbin walked home, thinking that it would be delightful to be in that hackney coach with Mrs. Osborne. But George went off to the play to see Mr. Keene perform in Shylock. Mrs. Sedley, you may be sure, clasped her daughter with eager affection, running out of the door to welcome the weeping young bride. The Irish servant lass rushed up from the kitchen and smiled a, God bless you. Amelia could hardly walk up the steps into the parlor. How the floodgates were opened and mother and daughter wept, embracing each other, may readily be imagined. When don't we ladies weep? Let us leave Amelia and her mamma whispering and laughing and crying in the parlor. Old Mr. Sedley did. He had not flown out to meet his daughter, though he kissed her very warmly when she entered, and after sitting with the mother and daughter for a short time, he wisely left them alone. Only nine days had passed since Amelia had left that little cottage, yet how far off that time seemed. She could look back to that past life and contemplate the unmarried girl absorbed in love, receiving parental affection indifferently as if it were her due. The thought touched her with shame. Was her prize gained, and the winner still doubtful and unsatisfied?
When his hero and heroine marry, the novelist generally drops the curtain, as if the doubts and struggles of life ended, as if wife and husband had nothing to do but to link each other's arms and wander happily down towards old age. But our little Amelia was just on the bank of her new country, and was already looking anxiously back towards the sad, friendly figures waving farewell from the other distant shore. In honor of her arrival, her mother had planned all sorts of festive entertainment, and after the first joyful talk, left her daughter for a while and dived down to the kitchen parlor, occupied by Mr. and Mrs. Clapp, and in the evening by the Irish servant, to prepare a magnificent tea. All people have their ways of expressing kindness, and Mrs. Sedley thought that a muffin and orange marmalade in a little cut-glass saucer would be peculiarly agreeable to Amelia. Meanwhile, Amelia walked upstairs and found herself in her bedroom, and in that very chair in which she had passed so many bitter hours. She sank back in its arms as if it were an old friend, and fell to thinking over the past, already to be looking sadly back, always to be pining and in doubt. This was the lot of our poor little creature, wandering in the great struggling crowds of Vanity Fair. She recalled her image of George before marriage. Did she admit to herself how different the real man was from that superb young hero whom she had worshipped? It requires many, many years, and a man must be very bad indeed before a woman's vanity will allow such a confession. Then Rebecca's twinkling green eyes and baleful smile lighted upon her and filled her with dismay. So she sat, indulging in her usual selfish, listless brooding, just as she had before George renewed his offer of marriage. She looked at the little white bed, thinking she would like to sleep in it that night and wake with her mother smiling over her. Then she thought with terror of the great funereal pavilion in the vast and dingy bedroom at Cavendish Square. Oh, dear little white bed, how many a night had she wept on its pillow. Were not all her wishes now fulfilled? Kind mother, how patiently she had watched round that bed. Amelia knelt down by the bedside, and this timorous but loving soul sought for consolation, where as yet, it must be owned, she had seldom looked for it. Love had been her faith until now. Have we a right to overhear her prayers? Well, these are secrets, and out of the domain of Vanity Fair. But this may be said, that when tea was announced, Amelia came downstairs a great deal more cheerful. She did not think about George's coldness or Rebecca's eyes. She kissed her father and mother and talked to the old gentleman and made him more merry than he had been for many a day. She sat down at the piano, which Dobbin had bought, and sang her father's favorite songs— she pronounced the tea to be excellent, and praised the exquisite taste in which the marmalade was arranged, and in determining to make everybody else happy, 
she found herself so, and was sound asleep in the great funereal pavilion, and woke up with a smile when George arrived from the theatre. George had written to his father's lawyers, signifying his royal pleasure that he should visit them the next day. His hotel bill and losses at billiards and cards to Captain Crawley had almost drained his purse, and he needed to infringe upon the two thousand pounds which the attorneys held for him. He had a perfect belief that his father would soon relent. How could any parent hold out long against such a paragon as he was? If his personal merits did not succeed in mollifying his father, George determined that he would distinguish himself so prodigiously in the coming campaign that the old gentleman must give in. And if not, bah, the world was before him. His luck might change at cards, and there was a deal of spending in two thousand pounds. So he sent off Amelia once more in a carriage to her mamma, with orders to the two ladies to purchase everything needful for a lady of fashion who was going on a foreign tour. Bustling about from milliner to linen draper, Mrs. Sedley was happy for the first time since their misfortunes. Nor was Amelia above the pleasure of shopping for pretty things, and obedient to her husband's orders, she purchased a quantity of ladies' gear with taste and discernment. She was not much alarmed about the coming war. Bonaparte was to be crushed almost without a struggle. Boats sailed every day to Brussels and Ghent, filled with men and ladies of fashion, as if they were going on a tour— the newspapers laughed at the Corsican upstart. Such a wretch withstand the armies of Europe and the genius of Wellington? <laughs> Amelia held him in utter contempt, for she took her opinions from the people who surrounded her, being too humble-minded to think for herself. George, meanwhile, with his swaggering martial air, made for Bedford Row and stalked into the attorney's offices like a lord. He ordered a clerk to inform Mr. Higgs that Captain Osborne was waiting, in a fierce and patronizing way, as if the attorney, who had thrice his brains, fifty times his money, and a thousand times his experience, was a wretched underling who should instantly leave his business to attend on the captain's pleasure. He did not see the sneer of contempt which passed round the room as he sat there, tapping his boot with his cane, and thinking what miserable poor devils these were. The miserable poor devils knew all about his affairs. They talked about them over their pints of beer at night. What do attorney's clerks not know in London? Nothing is hidden from them. Perhaps George expected, when he entered Mr. Higgs' office, to find that gentleman bore some message of conciliation from his father. But he was met by a chilling coolness and indifference on the attorney's part. "'Pray sit down, sir,' said Mr. Higgs, "'and I will attend to your little affair in a moment. Mr. Poe, get the release papers, if you please.' And he kept writing. Poe, having produced the papers, his chief calculated the amount of two thousand pounds stock at the rate of the day, and asked Captain Osborne whether he would take the sum in a cheque. "'Give me a cheque, sir,' said the captain surlily. "'Damn the shillings and halfpence, sir,' he added. 
as the lawyer was making it up, and flattering himself that by this magnanimous stroke he had put the old man to the blush, he stalked out of the office with the paper in his pocket. "'That chap will be in jail in two years,' Mr. Higgs said to Mr. Poe. "'He's going it pretty fast,' said the clerk. "'He's only married a week, and I saw him and some other military chaps "'handing Mrs. Highflyer to her carriage after the play.' And then another case was called, and Mr. George Osborne was dismissed from their memory. George went next to the bank, Hulker and Bullock, to draw out the two thousand pounds. Frederick Bullock happened to be in the banking room when George entered. He went pale when he saw the captain and slunk back guiltily into the inmost parlor. George was too busy gloating over the money, for he had never had such a sum before, to mark the flight of his sister's suitor. Fred Bullock later told old Osborne of his son's appearance. He came in as bold as brass. He has drawn out every shilling. How long will it last such a chap as that? Well, old Osborne swore with a great oath that he did not care how soon he spent it. Fred dined every day in Russell Square now. But George was highly pleased with his day's business. He paid for Amelia's purchases with the splendor of a lord. Chapter 27 In Which Amelia Joins Her Regiment When Joss's carriage drove Amelia to the inn at Chatham, the first face she recognized was Captain Dobbins. He had been pacing the street for an hour, waiting for his friend's arrival. The captain, with a crimson sash and sabre, had such a military appearance that Joss was quite proud to claim acquaintance with him, and he hailed him much more cordially than he had in London. With the captain was Ensign Stubble, who, as the barouche approached, exclaimed, "'By Jove, what a pretty girl!' Indeed. Amelia, dressed in her wedding police, flushed with travel and the open air, looked so fresh and pretty as fully to justify the ensign's compliment. Dobbin liked him for making it. As he helped her out of the carriage, Stubble saw what a pretty little hand she gave him, and what a sweet little foot came tripping down the step. He blushed profusely and made his very best bow, to which Amelia replied with a smile and a curtsy, which finished the young ensign on the spot. Dobbin took most kindly to Mr. Stubble from that day and encouraged him to talk about Amelia. It became the fashion, indeed, among all the honest young fellows of the regiment to admire Mrs. Osborne. Her artless behavior and modest kindness won their unsophisticated hearts. George, always the champion of his regiment, rose immensely in their opinion by his gallantry in marrying this portionless, pretty young creature. On her arrival, Amelia, to her surprise, found a letter addressed to her. It was on pink paper and sealed with a dove and an olive branch and a profusion of light blue sealing wax, and it was written in a very large female hand. Ah, it's Peggy O'Dowd's writing, said George, laughing. 
and indeed it was a note from Mrs. Major O'Dowd, requesting the pleasure of Mrs. Osborne's company that evening at a small party. You must go, George said. O'Dowd goes in command of the regiment, and Peggy just goes in command. But minutes later, the door was flung open, and a stout, jolly lady in a riding habit, followed by a couple of officers, entered the room. "'Sure, I couldn't stop till tea-time. "'Oh, present me, George, my dear fellow, to your lady. "'Oh, madam, I'm delighted to see you "'and to present to you me husband, Major O'Dowd.' "'The jolly lady grasped Amelia's hand very warmly. "'You've often heard of me from that husband of yours,' "'she said with vivacity. "'You've often heard of her,' echoed her husband, the Major.' Amelia answered, smiling, that she had. "'And small goodies told you of me,' Mrs. O'Dowd replied, adding that George was a wicked devil. "'This, my dear,' said George, "'is my very good, excellent friend Aurelia, otherwise called Peggy.' "'Faith, you're right,' interposed the Major. "'Lady of Major Michael O'Dowd of our regiment, and daughter of Fitzgerald Beresford de Burgo Maloney of Glen Maloney, County Kildare.' "'And Marion Square, Dublin,' said the Lady, with calm superiority. "'Oh, and Marion Square, sure enough,' the Major whispered. "'Twas there you courted me, Major, dear,' the Lady said, and the Major assented to this as to every other thing she said.' Major O'Dowd, who had served his sovereign gallantly in every quarter of the world, was the most modest and meek of little men, totally obedient to his wife. At the mess-table he sat silently and drank a great deal. When, full of liquor, he reeled silently home. When he spoke, it was to agree with everybody, and he passed through life in perfect good humour. He had an old mother whom he had never disobeyed, except when he ran away and enlisted, and when he married that odious Peggy Maloney. Peggy was one of eleven children of the noble house of Glen Maloney. Her husband was her cousin on her mother's side. Having tried nine seasons at Dublin and two at Bath without finding a husband, Mrs. Maloney ordered her cousin Mick to marry her when she was about thirty-three— and the honest fellow obeyed. Before Mrs. O'Dowd was half an hour in Amelia's, or indeed in anybody's, company, this amiable lady told all her pedigree to her new friend. "'My dear,' said she, good-naturedly, "'I meant for George to marry my sister Glorvina. She would have suited him entirely. But as he was engaged to yourself, I'm determined to love you as a sister.' "'Ah, oh, Faith, I'm sure you'll be an addition to our family.' and she will,' said O'Dowd, and Amelia felt amused and grateful to be thus suddenly introduced to so many relations. "'We're all good fellows in this regiment,' the Major's lady continued. "'There's no quarrelling, bickering, nor slandering amongst us. We all love each other.' "'Especially Mrs. McGinnis,' said George, laughing. "'Mrs. Captain McGinnis and me is made up, though her treatment of me would bring me grey hairs.' "'And you with such beautiful black locks, Peggy, my dear,' 
the major cried. Oh, hold your tongue, Mick, you booby. Them husbands are always in the way, Mrs. Osborne, my dear, and I often tell my Mick he should never open his mouth but to give the word of command or to put meat and drink into it. <laughs> Introduce me to your brother now. Sure, he's a mighty fine man. Mr. Sedley, sir, I'm delighted to be made known to you. I suppose you'll dine at the mess today. It's a farewell dinner, my love, interposed the major, but we'll easy get a card for Mr. Sedley. Ensign Simple, run with Mrs. Major O'Dowd's compliments to Colonel Tavish, and Captain Osborne has brought his brother-in-law down, and we'll bring him to the mess at five o'clock. Before Mrs. O'Dowd's speech was concluded, the young ensign was trotting downstairs. "'Obedience is the soul of the army. "'We will go to our duty, "'while Mrs. O'Dowd will stay and enlighten you, Emmy,' "'Captain Osborne said, "'and the two gentlemen walked out with the Major, "'grinning at each other. "'And, now having her new friend to herself, "'Mrs. O'Dowd poured out such a quantity of information "'as no poor little woman's memory could bear.' She told Amelia a thousand details of the regimental family. Oh, Mrs. Heavytop, the colonel's wife, died in Jamaica of the yellow fever, and a broken heart, for the horrid old colonel was making sheep eyes at a half-caste girl there. Ha! Mrs. McGinnis, though without education, was a good woman, but she had the devil's tongue and would cheat her own mother at whist. Mrs. Captain Kirk turns up her lobster eyes at the idea of an honest game. Although me father and me cousin, the bishop, played whist every night of their lives. Mrs. Bunny's in an interesting situation. Faith, she always is. And has given the lieutenant seven already. And Ensign Posky's wife, who joined two months before you, my dear, has quarreled with Tom Posky a score of times till you can hear him all over the barrack. And Tom's never accounted for his black eye, and she'll go back to her mother at Richmond. Of this incongruous family, our astonished Amelia found herself suddenly a member, with Mrs. O'Dowd as an elder sister. She was presented to other female relations at tea time, and being quiet, good-natured, and not too handsome, she made an agreeable impression until the arrival of the gentleman who all admired her, so that her sisters began, of course, to find fault with her. I hope Osborne has sown his wild oats, said Mrs. McGinnis to Mrs. Bunny. If a reformed rake makes a good husband, sure she'll have a fine chance with George, said Mrs. O'Dowd. But the men rallied round their comrade's pretty wife, and paid her their court with soldierly gallantry, making her eyes sparkle. George was proud of her popularity and pleased with the graceful, gay manner with which she received the gentleman's attentions. And he, oh, so handsome in his uniform, she felt him watching her and glowed with pleasure at his kindness. I will make all his friends welcome, she resolved. I will always try and be gay and good-humored and make his home happy. The regiment, indeed, adopted her with acclaim. Young Stubble kept whispering, Jove, isn't she a pretty gal? And never took his eyes off her. As for Captain Dobbin, he never spoke to her the whole evening. <laughs>
but he and Captain Porter took Joss, who was in a very maudlin state, back to the hotel. Having put him into the hands of his servant, Dobbin loitered about, smoking his cigar before the inn door. George had meanwhile brought his wife away from Mrs. O'Dowd's. Amelia gave Dobbin her hand as she got out of the carriage, and rebuked him smilingly for not having taken any notice of her all night. The captain kept smoking, long after everyone had gone to bed. He watched the lights vanish from George's sitting-room windows and shine out in the bedroom. It was almost morning when he returned to his own quarters. He could hear the cheering from the ships in the river, where the transports were taking in their cargoes before moving down the Thames. Chapter 28 in which Amelia invades the Low Countries. Two days later, to cheering from all the East India ships in the river and the military on shore, the transports carried the regiment down the Medway and proceeded under convoy to Ostend. Meanwhile, Joss had agreed to escort his sister and the major's wife to Ramsgate, where there were plenty of packet boats. In one of these, they had a speedy passage to Belgium. The period of Joss's life which followed was so full of incident that it served him for conversation for many years after, and even the tiger-hunt story was put aside for his stirring narratives about the great campaign of Waterloo. At Chatham, he followed the parades and drills assiduously. He listened with attention to the conversation of his brother officers, as he called them in after days, and learned as many military names as he could. He ceased shaving and began to grow mustachios like a soldier. When they embarked on board the lovely rose, which was to carry them to Ostend, he wore a braided frock coat and a foraging cap with a smart gold band. Since he informed everybody on board confidentially that he was going to join the Duke of Wellington's army, folks mistook him for a government courier at the very least. He suffered hugely on the voyage, as did the ladies, but Amelia was brought to life again at Ostend by the sight of the transports conveying her regiment, which entered the harbour almost at the same time. Joss went in a collapsed state to an inn, while Captain Dobbin escorted the ladies, and then busied himself in finding Joss's carriage and luggage. Mr. Joss's and Osborne's servants had both refused point-blank to cross the water. In their place, Dobbin found a swarthy little Belgian servant called Isidore, who, by his bustling behaviour and by addressing Mr. Sedley as my lord, speedily acquired Joss's favour. This flat, flourishing, easy country could never have looked more prosperous than in that summer of 1815, when its green fields and quiet cities were enlivened by multiple redcoats when its avenues swarmed with brilliant English carriages, when its great canal-boats gliding by rich pastures and quaint villages and old chateaux were crowded with well-to-do English travellers, when the soldier who drank at the village inn paid his score, and Donald the Highlander, billeted in the Flemish farmhouse, rocked the baby's cradle while Jean and Jeanette were getting in the hay. Meanwhile, 
Napoleon was preparing for the outbreak which was to drive all these orderly people into fury and bloodshed. Everybody had such perfect confidence in their leader, the Duke of Wellington. The country seemed in so perfect a state of orderly defense, and the help at hand so near that alarm was unknown, and our travelers, like all the other English tourists, were entirely at ease. The regiment was taken in canal boats to Bruges and Ghent, from there to march to Brussels. Joss accompanied the ladies in luxurious public boats, whose food and drink was legendary. Joss was exceedingly comfortable, and Mrs. O'Dowd insisted that he only wanted her sister Glorvina to make his happiness complete. He sat on the cabin roof all day, drinking Flemish beer, shouting for Isidore, his servant, and talking gallantly to the ladies. His courage was prodigious. Bony attack us. Oh, my dear Emmy, don't be frightened. There's no danger. The Allies will be in Paris in two months, and I'll take you to dine in the Palais Royal by Jove. There are three hundred thousand Russians, I tell you, now entering France under Wittgenstein. You don't know military affairs, my dear. I do. And there's no infantry in France can stand against Russian infantry and no French general that can hold a candle to Wittgenstein. Then there are five hundred thousand Austrians within ten marches of the frontier, and the Prussians. Oh, hey, Mrs. O'Dowd, <laughs> do you think our little girl here need be afraid? Oh, Isidore, get some more beer. <laughs> Having frequently been in the presence of the enemy, or, in other words, faced the ladies at Cheltenham and Bath, Joss had lost a great deal of his timidity, and was now, especially when fortified with liquor, as talkative as might be. He was rather a favorite with the regiment, treating the young officers generously and amusing them with his military airs. And, as there is one well-known regiment which travels with a goat heading the column, whilst another is led by a deer, George said, regarding his brother-in-law, that his regiment marched with an elephant. But George began to be rather ashamed of some of the company to which he had presented Amelia, and resolved, as he told Dolvin, to exchange into some better regimen soon, and to get his wife away from these damned vulgar women. This idea of being ashamed of one's society is much more common among men than women, except very great ladies of fashion, and Mrs. Amelia had none of her husband's shamefacedness, which he called delicacy. Thus, Mrs. O'Dowd's feathers and ornaments gave excruciating agonies to Captain Osborne, whereas Amelia was only amused by the honest lady's eccentricities and not in the least ashamed of her company. During their journey, there might have been more instructive, but few more entertaining companions than Mrs. Major O'Dowd. I'll talk about canal boats, my dear. You should see the canal boats between Dublin and Ballinasloe. It's there the rapid travelling is, and the beautiful cattle. Oh, sure, me father got a gold medal for a four-year-old heifer, the like of which you never saw in this country. And Joss owned with a sigh that 
for good streaky beef, there was no country like England. Except Ireland, where are all... Except Ireland, where all your best meat comes from, said the Major's lady. The market at Bruges, compared to Dublin, called down her scorn. What do they mean by that old gazebo on top of the marketplace? The town was full of English soldiery. English bugles woke them in the morning. They went to bed to the note of the British fife and drum. All the country was in arms, with the greatest event of history pending. Yet honest Peggy O'Dowd went on prattling about the horses in the stables at Glen Maloney, and Joss Sedley interposed about curry and rice and, and all that at Dundrum, and Amelia thought about her husband, and how best she could show her love for him, as if these were the great topics of the world. In general, the business of life and living and the pursuits of pleasure, went on as if there were no enemy ahead. When our travellers arrived at Brussels, they found themselves in one of the gayest and most brilliant little capitals in Europe, with all the Vanity Fair booths laid out in tempting splendour. There was gambling, dancing, feasting, a theatre, beautiful rides, and a rare old city with wonderful architecture to delight the eyes of little Amelia, who had never before seen a foreign country. For about a fortnight, she was as pleased and happy as any bride. Every day there was novelty and amusement. There was a church to see, or a picture gallery, a ride, or an opera— the regimental bands made music at all hours. George, taking his wife to a new jaunt or junket every night, was pleased with himself, as usual, and swore he was becoming quite domesticated. And a jaunt or a junket with him? Her little heart beat with joy. Her letters home to her mother were filled with delight and gratitude. Her husband bade her buy laces, millinery, jewels, and gimcracks of all sorts. Oh, he was the best and most generous of men. The sight of the great company of lords and ladies who thronged the town filled George with intense delight. In public places, they condescended to mingle with the rest of the company. One night, George had the honour of dancing with Lady Blanche Thistlewood, Lord Bearacre's daughter. He bustled for ices and refreshments for the two noble ladies, and bragged about the Countess when he got home in a way which his own father could not have surpassed. He called upon the ladies the next day and rode by their side in the park. He asked them to a great dinner at a restaurant, and was quite wild with exultation when they agreed to come. Old Bearacres would go for a dinner anywhere. "'I hope there will be no women besides our own party,' Lady Bearacres said to her daughter. "'Gracious heaven, Mamma! You don't suppose the man would bring his wife?' shrieked Lady Blanche, who had been languishing in George's arms in the waltz the night before. "'The men are bearable, but they're women.' "'Just married. Devilish pretty woman, I hear,' the old earl said. "'Well, my dear Blanche,' said the mother, "'I suppose, as Papa wants to go, we must, but we needn't know them in England.' And so 
determined to cut their new friend in Bond Street. These great folks went to eat his dinner at Brussels, condescending to make him pay for their pleasure, and showed their dignity by carefully excluding his wife from the conversation. This festival, on which George spent a great deal of money, was the dismalest of entertainments to Amelia. She wrote a piteous account to her mamma, how the Countess of Bearacres would not answer when spoken to, how Lady Blanche stared at her with an eyeglass, and what a rage Captain Dobbin was in at their behaviour. Old Mrs. Sedley was mightily pleased, nevertheless, and talked about Emmy's friend, the Countess of Bearacres. Those who know the present Lieutenant-General, Sir George Tufto, KCB, and have seen him strutting down pell-mell with a rickety swagger in his high-heeled boots, leering at the bonnets of passers-by, those who know the present Lieutenant-General, Sir George Tufto, KCB, and have seen him strutting down pell-mell with a rickety swagger in his high-heeled boots, leering at the bonnets of passers-by, those who know the present Sir George Tufto would hardly recognize the daring Waterloo officer. In 1815 he was stout, light-haired, and bald. When he was about seventy, his scarce white hair suddenly grew thick and brown and curly, and his whiskers turned purple. But one day back then, as some of our friends were sauntering in the flower market of Brussels, an officer rode up, and descending from his horse, selected the very finest bouquet which money could buy. He remounted, giving the nosegay into the charge of his groom, and rode away in great state and self-satisfaction. "'You should see the flowers at Glen Maloney,' Mrs. O'Dowd was remarking. We have an acre of hothouses. Our grapes weigh six pounds a bunch, and upon me honour, I think our magnolias is as big as tea kettles. Dobbin fell back in the crowd, crowing and spluttering until he reached a safe distance when he exploded amongst the astonished market people with shrieks of yelling laughter. Ha! <laughs> oh, what's that gawky goggling about? said Mrs. O'Dowd. Ain't the magnolias at Glen Maloney as big as tea kettles, O'Dowd? Deed they are, and bigger, Peggy, the Major said, when the conversation was interrupted in the manner stated by the officer who bought the bouquet. Devilish fine horse, who is it? George asked. It's General Tufto, who commands a cavalry division, said the Major. General Tufto? Oh, then, my dear, the Crawleys are come. Amelia's heart fell. She knew not why. The sun did not seem to shine so bright, though it was a brilliant sunset, and one of the most beautiful days at the end of May. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. 
And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.